Chapter Four, Part Two of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Four, Part Two. THE LOSS OF THE ENDURANCE Then came the fateful day, Wednesday, October 27th. The position was latitude 69 degrees, 5 minutes south, longitude 51 degrees, 30 minutes west. The temperature was minus 8.5 degrees Fahrenheit. A gentle southerly breeze was blowing, and the sun shone in a clear sky. After long months of ceaseless anxiety and strain, after times when hope beat high and times when the outlook was black indeed, the end of the endurance has come. But though we have been compelled to abandon the ship, which is crushed beyond all hope of ever being righted, we are alive and well, and we have stores and equipment for the task that lies before us. The task is to reach land with all the members of the expedition. It is hard to write what I feel, to a sailor his ship is more than a floating home. And in the endurance I had centred ambitions, hopes, and desires. Now, straining and groaning, her timbers creaking and her wounds gaping, she is slowly giving up her sentient life at the very outset of her career. She is crushed and abandoned after drifting more than 570 miles in a northwesterly direction, during the 281 days since she became locked in the ice. The distance from the point where she became beset, to the place where she now rests, mortally hurt in the grip of the flow, is 573 miles. But the total drift, through all the observed positions, has been 1,186 miles, and probably we actually covered more than 1,500 miles. We are now 346 miles from Paulet Island, the nearest point where there is any possibility of finding food and shelter. A small hut, built there by the Swedish expedition in 1902, is filled with stores left by the Argentine relief ship. I know all about those stores, for I purchased them in London on behalf of the Argentine government, when they asked me to equip the relief expedition. The distance to the nearest barrier west of us is about 180 miles, but a party going there would still be about 360 miles from Paulet Island, and there would be no means of sustaining life on the barrier. We could not take from here food enough for the whole journey. The weight would be too great. This morning, our last on the ship, the weather was clear with a gentle south-southeasterly to south-southwesterly breeze. From the crow's nest there was no sign of land of any sort. The pressure was increasing steadily, and the passing hours brought no relief or respite for the ship. The attack of the ice reached its climax at 4 p.m. The ship was hove stern up by the pressure, and the driving flow, moving laterally across the stern, split the rudder and tore out the rudder post and stern post. Then, while we watched, the ice loosened and the endurance sank a little. 
the decks were breaking upwards, and the water was pouring in below. Again the pressure began, and at five p.m. I ordered all hands on to the ice. The twisting, grinding floes were working their will at last on the ship. It was a sickening sensation to feel the decks breaking up under one's feet, the great beams bending and then snapping with a noise like heavy gunfire. The water was overmastering the pumps, and, to avoid an explosion when it reached the boilers, I had to give orders for the fires to be drawn and the steam let down. The plans for abandoning the ship in case of emergency had been made well in advance, and men and dogs descended to the floe and made their way to the comparative safety of an unbroken portion of the floe without a hitch. Just before leaving, I looked down the engine room skylight as I stood on the quivering deck and saw the engines dropping sideways as the stays and bed plates gave way. I cannot describe the impression of relentless destruction that was forced upon me as I looked down and around. The floes, with the force of millions of tons of moving ice behind them, were simply annihilating the ship. Essential supplies had been placed on the floe about a hundred yards from the ship, and there we set about making a camp for the night. But about 7 p.m., after the tents were up, the ice we were occupying became involved in the pressure and started to split and smash beneath our feet. I had the camp move to a bigger floe about 200 yards away, just beyond the bow of the ship. Boats, stores and camp equipment had to be conveyed across a working pressure ridge. The movement of the ice was so slow that it did not interfere much with our short trek, but the weight of the ridge had caused the floes to sink on either side, and there were pools of water there. A pioneer party with picks and shovels had to build a snow causeway before we could get all our possessions across. By 8 p.m. the camp had been pitched again. We had two pole tents and three hoop tents. I took charge of the small pole tent, number one, with Hudson, Hurley and James's companions. Wilde had the small hoop tent, number two, with Wordy, McNeish and McIlroy. These hoop tents were very easily shifted and set up. The eight forward hands had the large hoop tent, number three. Crean had charge of number four hoop tent, with Hussey, Marston and Cheatham. And Worsley had the other pole tent, number five, with Greenstreet, Lees, Clark, Kerr, Rickinson, Macklin and Blackborough. The last name being the youngest of the forward hands. Tonight the temperature has dropped to minus sixteen degrees Fahrenheit, and most of the men are cold and uncomfortable. After the tents had been pitched, I mustered all hands and explained the position to them briefly, and, I hope, clearly. I have told them the distance to the barrier, and the distance to Paulet Island, and have stated that I propose to try to march with equipment across the ice in the direction of Paulet Island. I thanked the men for the steadiness and good morale they have shown in these trying circumstances, and told them I had no doubt that, provided they continue to work their utmost and trust me, we will all reach safety in the end. Then we had supper, which the cook had prepared at the big blubber stove, and after a watch had been set, all hands except the watch turned in. For myself I could not sleep. 
The destruction and abandonment of the ship was no sudden shock. The disaster had been looming ahead for many months, and I had studied my plans for all contingencies a hundred times. But the thoughts that came to me as I walked up and down in the darkness were not particularly cheerful. The task now was to secure the safety of the party, and to that I must bend my energies and mental power and apply every bit of knowledge that experience of the Antarctic had given me. The task was likely to be long and strenuous, and an ordered mind and a clear programme were essential if we were to come through without loss of life. A man must shape himself to a new mark directly the old one goes to ground. At midnight I was pacing the ice, listening to the grinding flow and to the groans and crashes that told of the death agony of the endurance, when I noticed a sudden crack running across our flow right through the camp. The alarm whistle brought all hands tumbling out, and we moved the tents and stores lying on what was now the smaller portion of the flow to the larger portion. Nothing more could be done at that moment, and the men turned in again, but there was little sleep. Each time I came to the end of my beat on the flow, I could just see in the darkness the unpeering piles of pressure ice which toppled over and narrowed still further the little floating island we occupied. I did not notice at the time that my tent, which had been on the wrong side of the crack, had not been erected again. Hudson and James had managed to squeeze themselves into other tents, and Hurley had wrapped himself in the canvas of number one tent. I discovered this about 5 a.m., all night long the electric light gleamed from the stern of the dying endurance. Hussey had left this light switched on when he took a last observation, and, like a lamp in a cottage window, it braved the night until, in the early morning, the endurance received a particularly violent squeeze. There was a sound of rending beams, and the light disappeared. The connection had been cut. Morning came in, chill and cheerless. All hands were stiff and weary after their first disturbed night on the floe. Just at daybreak I went over to the Endurance with Wilde and Hurley, in order to retrieve some tins of petrol that could be used to boil up milk for the rest of the men. The ship presented a painful spectacle of chaos and wreck. The jib-boon and bowsprit had snapped off during the night, and now lay at right angles to the ship. With the chains, martingale, and bobstray, dragging them as the vessel quivered and moved in the grinding pack. The ice had driven over the forecastle, and she was well down by the head. We secured two tins of petrol with some difficulty, and postponed the further examination of the ship until after breakfast. Jumping across cracks with the tins, we soon reached camp, and built a fireplace out of the triangular watertight tanks we had ripped from the lifeboat. This was done in order to make more room. Then we pierced a petrol tin in half a dozen places with an ice-axe and set fire to it. The petrol blazed fiercely under the five-gallon drum we used as a cooker, and the hot milk was ready in quick time. Then we three ministering angels went round the tents with a life-giving drink, and were surprised, and a trifle chagrined, at the matter-of-fact manner in which some of the men accepted this contribution to their comfort. They did not quite understand what work we had done for them in the early dawn, and I heard Wilde say, 
"'If any of you gentlemen would like your boots cleaned, just put them outside.' This was his gentle way of reminding them that a little thanks would go a long way on such occasions. The cook prepared breakfast, which consisted of biscuit and hoosh at eight a.m., and I then went over to the endurance again, and made a fuller examination of the wreck. Only six of the cabins had not been pierced by floes and blocks of ice. Every one of the starboard cabins had been crushed. The whole of the after part of the ship had been crushed concertina fashion. The forecastle and the ritz were submerged, and the wardroom was three-quarters full of ice. The starboard side of the wardroom had come away, the motor-engine forward had been driven through the galley. Petrol cases that had been stacked on the foredeck had been driven by the flow through the wall into the wardroom, and had carried before them a large picture. Curiously enough, the glass of this picture had not been cracked, whereas in the immediate neighbourhood I saw heavy iron davits that had been twisted and bent like the ironwork of a wrecked train. The ship was being crushed remorselessly, under a dull, overcast sky, I returned to camp and examined our situation. The flow occupied by the camp was still subject to pressure, and I thought it wise to move to a larger and apparently stronger flow about two hundred yards away, of the starboard bow of the ship. This camp was to become known as Dump Camp, owing to the amount of stuff that was thrown away there. We could not afford to carry unnecessary gear, and a drastic sorting of equipment took place. I decided to issue a complete new set of Burberries and underclothing to each man, and also a supply of new socks. The camp was transferred to the larger floe quickly, and I began there to direct preparations for the long journey across the floes to Paulette Island, or Snow Hill. Hurley, meanwhile, had rigged his cinematograph camera and was getting pictures of the endurance in her death-throes. While he was engaged thus, the ice, driving against the standing rigging and the foremain and mizzen-masts, snapped the shrouds. The foretop and topgallant mast came down with a run, and hung in wreckage on the foremast, with the fore-yield vertical. The mainmast followed immediately, snapping off about ten feet above the main deck. The crow's nest fell within ten feet of where Hurley stood, turning the handle of his camera, but he did not stop the machine, and so secured a unique, though sad, picture. The issue of clothing was quickly accomplished. Sleeping bags were required also. We had eighteen fur bags, and it was necessary, therefore, to issue ten of the Jager woollen bags, in order to provide for the twenty-eight men of the party. The woollen bags were lighter and less warm than the reindeer bags, and so each man who received one of them was allowed also a reindeer skin to lie upon. It seemed fair to distribute the fur bags by lot, but some of us older hands did not join in the lottery. We thought we could do quite as well with the jagers as with the furs. With quick dispatch the clothing was apportioned, and then we turned one of the boats on his side, and supported it with two broken oars to make a lee for the galley. The cook got the blubber stove going, and a little later, when I was sitting round the corner of the stove, I heard one man say, Cook, I like my tea strong. Another joined in, Cook, I like mine weak. 
it was pleasant to know that their minds were untroubled. But I thought the time opportune to mention that the tea would be the same for all hands, and that we would be fortunate if two months later we had any tea at all. It occurred to me at the time that the incident had psychological interest. Here were men, their home crushed, the camp pitched on the unstable floes, and their chance of reaching safety apparently remote, calmly attending to the details of existence, and giving their attention to such trifles as the strength of a brew of tea. During the afternoon the work continued. Every now and then we heard a noise like heavy guns or distant thunder, caused by the floes grinding together. The pressure caused by the congestion in this area of the pack is producing a scene of absolute chaos. The floes grind stupendously, throw up great ridges, and shatter one another mercilessly. The ridges, or hedgerows, marking the pressure lines that border the fast diminishing pieces of smooth floe ice, are enormous. The ice moves majestically, irresistibly. Human effort is not futile, but man fights against the giant forces of nature in a spirit of humility. One has a sense of dependence on the higher power. Today two seals, a weddell and a crab-eater, came close to the camp and were shot. Four others were chased back into the water, for their presence disturbed the dog-teams, and this meant floggings and trouble with the harness. The arrangement of the tents has been complete, and the internal management settled. Each tent has a mess orderly, the duty being taken in turn on an alphabetical rotor. The orderly takes the hush-pots off his tent to the galley, gets all the hush he is allowed, and, after the meal, cleans the vessels with snow, and stores them in sledge or boat ready for a possible move. October 29th we passed a quiet night, although the pressure was grinding around us. Our flow is a heavy one, and it withstood the blows it received. There is a light wind from the north-west to north-north-west, and the weather is fine. We are twenty-eight men with forty-nine dogs, including Sue and Sally's five grown-up pups. All hands this morning were busy preparing gear, fitting boats on sledges, and building up and strengthening the sledges to carry the boats. The main motor sledge, with its little fitting from the carpenter, carried our largest boats admirably. For the next boat, four ordinary sledges were lashed together, but we were dubious as to the strength of this contrivance. And as a matter of fact, it broke down quickly under strain. The ship is still afloat, with the spurs of the pack driven through her and holding her up. The forecastle head is under water, the docks are burst up by the pressure, the wreckage lies around in dismal confusion, but over all the blue ensign flies still. This afternoon Sally's three youngest pups, Sue Sirius, and Mrs. Chippy the carpenter's cat, have to be shot. We cannot undertake the maintenance of weaklings under the new conditions. Macklin, Crean, and the carpenter, seem to feel the loss of their friends rather badly. We propose making a short trial journey tomorrow, starting with two of the boats and the ten sledges. The number of dog teams has been increased to seven. Green Street taking charge of the new additional team, consisting of Snapper and Sally's four oldest pups. 
we have ten working sledges to relay with five teams. Wild and Hurley's teams will haul the cutter with the assistance of four men. The whaler and the other boats will follow, and the men who are hauling them will be able to help with the cutter at rough places. We cannot hope to make rapid progress, but each mile counts. Crean, this afternoon, has a bad attack of snow-blindness. The weather, on the morning of October 30th, was overcast and misty, with occasional falls of snow. A moderate north-easterly breeze was blowing. We were still living on extra food, brought from the ship, when we abandoned her, and the sledging and boating rations were intact. These rations would provide for twenty-eight men for fifty-six days on full rations, but we could count on getting enough seal and penguin meat to at least double this time. We could even, if progress proved too difficult and too injurious to the boats, which we must guard as our ultimate means of salvation, camp on the nearest heavy flow, scour the neighbouring pack for penguins and seals, and await the outward rift of the pack to open and navigable water. This plan would avoid the grave dangers we are now incurring of getting entangled in impassable pressure ridges and possibly irretrievably damaging the boats, which are bound to suffer in rough ice. It would also minimise the peril of the ice splitting under us, as it did twice during the night of our first camp. Yet I feel sure that it is the right thing to attempt a march, since if we can make five or seven miles a day to the north-west, our chance of reaching safety in the months to come will be increased greatly. There is a psychological aspect to the question also. It would be much better for the men in general to feel that, even though progress is slow, they are on their way to land, than it will be to simply sit down and wait for the tardy northwesterly drift to take us out of this cruel waste of ice. We will make an attempt to move. The issue is beyond my power either to predict or to control. That afternoon Wilde and I went out in the mist and snow to find a road to the northeast. After many devious turnings to avoid the heavier pressure ridges, we pioneered away for at least a mile and a half, and then returned by a rather better route to the camp. The pressure now was rapid in movement, and our flow was suffering from the shakes and jerks of the ice. At 3 p.m. after lunch, we got under way, leaving Dump Cap a mass of debris. The order was that personal gear must not exceed two pounds per man, and this meant that nothing but bare necessaries was to be taken on the march. We could not afford to cumber ourselves with unnecessary weight. Holes had been dug in the snow for the reception of private letters and little personal trifles. The lars and penates of the members of the expedition, and into the privacy of these white graves were consigned much of sentimental value, and not of little intrinsic worth. I rather grudged the two pounds allowance per man, owing to my keen anxiety to keep weights at a minimum, but some personal belongings could fairly be regarded as indispensable. The journey might be a long one, and there was a possibility of a winter in impoverished quarters on an inhospitable coast at the other end. A man under such conditions needs something to occupy his thoughts, some tangible memento of his home, and people beyond the seas. So sovereigns were thrown away, and photographs were kept. 
I tore the fly-leaf out of the Bible that Queen Alexandra had given to the ship, with her own writing on it, and also the wonderful page of Job containing the verse. Out of whose womb comes the ice, and the hoary fr frost of heaven who has gendered it, the waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Job chapter 38 verses 29 to 30 the other Bible which Queen Alexandra had given us for the use of the shore party was down below in the lower hold in one of the cases when the ship received her death-blow. Suitcases were thrown away. These were retrieved later as material for making boots, and some of them marked solid leather, proved, to our disappointment, to contain a large percentage of cardboard. The manufacturer would have had difficulty in convincing us at the time that the deception was anything short of criminal. The pioneer sledge party, consisting of Wordy, Hussey, Hudson, and myself, carrying picks and shovels, started to break a road through the pressure ridges for the sledges carrying the boats. The boats, with their gear and the sledges beneath them, weighed each more than a ton. The cutter was smaller than the whaler, but weighed more, and was a much more strongly built boat. The whaler was mounted on the sledge part of the girling tractor, forward, and two sledges amidships and aft. These sledges were strengthened with cross-timbers, and shortened oars fore and aft. The cutter was mounted on the aero-sledge. The sledges were the point of weakness. It appeared almost hopeless to prevent them smashing under the heavy-laden loads, when travelling over rough pressure-ice, which stretched ahead of us for probably three hundred miles. After the pioneer sledge had started, the seven dog teams got off. They took their sledges forward for half a mile, then went back for the other sledges. Worsley took charge of the two boats, with fifteen men hauling, and these also had to be relayed. It was heavy work for dogs and men, but there were intervals of comparative rest on the backward journey, after the first portion of the load had been taken forward. We passed over two opening cracks, through which killers were pushing their ugly snouts, and by five p.m. had covered a mile in a north-northwesterly direction. The condition of the ice ahead was chaotic, for since the morning increased pressure had developed, and the pack was moving and crashing in all directions. So I gave the order to pitch camp for the night on flat ice, which unfortunately proved to be young and salty. The older pack was too rough and too deeply laden with snow to offer a suitable camping ground. Although we had gained only one mile in a direct line, the necessary deviations made the distance travelled at least two miles, and the relays brought the distance marched up to six miles. Some of the dog teams had covered at least ten miles. I set the watch from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m., one hour for each man in each tent in rotation. During the night snow fell heavily, and the floor cloths of the tents got wet through, as the temperature had risen to plus twenty-five degrees Fahrenheit. One of the things we hoped for in those days was the temperature in the neighbourhood of zero, for then the snow surface would be hard, we would not be troubled by damp, and our gear would not become covered in soft snow. The killers were blowing all night and a crack appeared about twenty foot from the camp at two a.m. 
the ice below us was quite thin enough for the killers to break through, if they took a fancy to do so. But there was no other camping ground within our reach, and we had to take the risk. When morning came, the snow was falling so heavily that we could not see more than a few score yards ahead, and I decided not to strike camp. A path over the shattered floes would be hard to find, and to get the boats into a position of peril might be disastrous. Rickinson and Worsley started back for dump camp at 7 a.m. to get some wood and blubber for the fire, and an hour later we had hoosh with one biscuit each. At 10 a.m. Hurley and Hudson left for the old camp, in order to bring some additional dog pomican, since there were no seals to be found near us. Then, as the weather cleared, Worsley and I made a prospect to the west, and tried to find a practicable road. A large flow offered a fairly good road for at least another mile to the northwest, and we went back prepared for another move. The weather cleared a little, and after lunch we struck camp. I took Rickinson, Kerr, Wordy, and Hudson as a breakdown gang to pioneer a path among the pressure ridges. Five dog teams followed. Wilde's and Hurley's teams were hitched onto the cutter, and they started off in a splendid style. They needed to be helped only once. Indeed, fourteen dogs did as well, or even better, than eighteen men. The ice was moving beneath and around us as we worked towards the big floe, and where this floe met the smaller ones, there was a mass of pressed-up ice still in motion, with water between the ridges. But it is wonderful what a dozen men can do with picks and shovels. We cut a road through a pressure ridge about fourteen feet high in ten minutes, and leave a smooth, or a comparatively smooth, path for the sledges and teams. End of chapter 4, part 2